I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is different recently. Something that is not different is the Word of God. It is not different. It has not changed. God's decrees have not changed. Uh, God has not been caught off guard by one single thing, and He never is caught off guard. In fact, God is in charge And he has an ultimate plan. We are trusting him. And I say that at the beginning because we are turning to Genesis 48. Uh, Did I already tell you that? Genesis 48, we are almost done with our series on Genesis because there's this chapter, 49 and 50. And I'm, I'm just, every time I come in to study... I just keep coming back to this similar theme that is running all the way back to chapters 11, 12, 13, really when the Abrahamic covenant begins, where God said, I am building a nation, and I'm going to do it with you, Abraham. I know you're worshiping the moon. I know you're not. He wasn't a Christian, and he wasn't at Starbucks. This was a long time ago. There was no Israel. There was no Christianity God picked a man and said, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to make your descendants more than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And then he went from there and there was Abraham and then there's Isaac and then there's Jacob. And what you're seeing in their lives and in their stories is a lot of stuff that if I were God, I wouldn't have done. There's just a lot of things that are in here that seem wild and crazy the way that God did what He did. And we are coming face to me, it's like every time I open Genesis, that's what I keep seeing, is that God is faithful and unpredictable, and our job is to simply trust Him. Which is really easy to say in our comfy chairs on a Sunday morning, and we say, you know what? that sounds like it's probably true, I should probably nod my head or say amen. But the reality is that when you are Joseph in prison or Jacob running away from Esau or you are Abraham being asked to kill your son, the reality of trusting God in those moments is a completely different thing than sitting in the comfy chair going, I bet that preacher's right. And in addition, I hope we're having chicken for lunch today. Right? Isn't that what we do on Sundays? wonder what's happening later today. Who's playing football today? This is a beautiful day to watch football, right? Go home. It, there, you, I can tell my wife, I can't cut the grass. I can't do anything outside. It's raining. I mean, it looks like I'm stuck on the couch eating chips and watching football. I'm sorry what we got to do, right? I mean, our brain, it's it's Sunday, it's relaxed day. Reality is so different than what we know and think to be true, right? I mean, all I'm saying is, is that there is a difference between knowing something is true and then living out the truth. There's just a difference. There's a huge difference. So, with those thoughts in mind... We're going to start with uh, Genesis 48. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to talk about it. And my prayer is is that you will be encouraged today because there is something in here that is 
super encouraging. Okay, Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of people and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in, the, in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, my, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, shall, he also shall become a people, and he, sh he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reading of your word. You told us to read it publicly. And Lord, we are doing that and we are asking this morning that you would help us to understand what this was written. You said in your word that this is the kind of thing that was written for our benefit to help us. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, you would encourage us, and you would help me to communicate in a way that is profitable for everybody. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
That's an interesting story. The end of a story. Just so you know, uh, Jacob is 147 years old as this is taking place. He is about to die. In fact, I'll ruin it for you and tell you that he's going to die in the next chapter. But we know he's going to die. He says he's going to die. He's on his deathbed. He can't see. He's sick. He's 147, so he's, he's done. And this chapter is about the continuation of the blessing and the promise of God, and he's, pre- he's passing that on. So a couple things I want to look at, uh, just, just some housekeeping scripturally about what we're looking at. Jacob, uh, in the beginning, as, he, as the boys are brought to him, and he's on his deathbed, you can picture that kind of scene, right? This is the patriarch of the family. He's ready to pass away. People are coming to visit. They know that he doesn't have much longer. And Joseph, who is now 59 years old, you follow the math through, so Joseph is not a kid anymore. And Joseph's sons, the way this sounds, it sounds like he's got Arwen and Solomon in there, a bunch of six and seven-year-olds, but they're probably more like in their 20s, his children at this point. So... They're probably enduring a grandfather. Keep in mind, Joseph has spent the majority of his life in Egypt, which was the top cultural apex of the world at that time. And his sons had grown up in that. Joseph is the viceroy. He is the prime ministry or prime minister of Egypt, and his sons have grown up in essence as royalty. And here is a shepherd that is their grandpa. Now, nobody has ever had this experience. They're like, oh, yeah, we've got to go to Grandpa's house over the river and through the woods to Hickville we go to see Grandpa. That's kind of what's happening here. Uh, Grandpa, the patriarch, respected, but still, we grew up over here in an urban center in the city, and here's the country shepherd grandfather coming in, and he's scooping us up and setting us on his knee to give us this blessing. I'm just trying to picture what I would have thought and felt when I was 19 to 24 years old, and this was me. Anybody picturing putting yourself there? Chris, this is you. This is Chris going, and he's having this kind of experience. Like, what in the world is going on? But it's incredibly important. And Joseph, who, and this is absolutely essential this morning to understanding, Of all the characters that we've dealt with, other than perhaps Abraham, and even then, Joseph seems to have been the most consistently godly guy out of the whole bunch. Now, Abraham is lauded in the book of Romans as the man of faith. But do you remember going through there when he said, yeah, she's not my wife, this isn't my wife and let Pharaoh take her. And there's the one instance where we're pretty sure that there was a consummation of him taking her. Remember that? Abraham, like he trusted God, but sometimes he didn't. Remember remember Isaac and just, uh, his story is, is a little shorter, but Isaac being uh, not a very good father figure and favoring Esau and knows that God wants... Jacob to be the one because he had the dream 
or his wife had the dream and yet he rejects that and he's still going to favor the manly man that's all hairy Esau and then remember Jacob Jacob has been nothing but his entire story his name means deceiver and he's tricking his dad and if you notice the parallels here when he went to Isaac to trick him his eyesight was gone but now Jacob is the one with the hereditary eyesight that's bad and he can't see he's in the same situation except nobody's deceiving him. But you've got to think that as Jacob's doing the blessing, he remembers that, remembers the fact that he, in the same scenario, had deceived Isaac, his father. Joseph, the only thing we can really say about Joseph is that he was a little arrogant when he told the dream when he was 17 years old. And let's face it, when you're 17, you're not necessarily fully emotionally mature as an adult yet so if you have a dream that everybody's going to bow down to you you may have been like hey i had this dream and all you guys are bowing down to me they had to tell him joseph slow down but his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery so just saying all that to say joseph demonstrated faithfulness to god when he was sold into slavery in potiphar's house he demonstrated faithfulness to god when he was in prison He's demonstrated faithfulness to God all the way through. And in the last chapter, we found out that he was a good steward and wise, and he was prepared for what happened during the famine and after. Of all the guys we've looked at, Joseph is the most, in my view, the most faithful to, uh, to God and to the covenant. So when he's in this moment... He's expecting something to happen a certain way. So he does, because he recognizes that his father can't see. He recognizes that Jacob is old and doesn't, can't tell, make things out. So he makes sure that he takes the oldest son to the right side of Jacob and the younger son to the left side. Now what's the significance of that? In our culture, maybe not much, but in their culture and their tradition and their world, the oldest is supposed to get the blessing, and the right hand always demonstrates the right hand of power. So for all you left-handed people, it's just God's subtle way of saying, get it right! No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Lee. I just said that for Lee. We have a little joke. You know they used to make you... How many of you remember that if you were left-handed as a kid, they used to smack you with a ruler and make you do your right hand? Anybody remember that? Now, I'm... Uh, they, they, yeah, Lee had that happen. Like, you can't be left-handed. What's wrong with you? Okay, we know, we know a little better than that now, but the right hand in this culture represents authority and power. The left hand means, yeah, you're in the family, but you're, on the left, you're over here on the left-hand side. So this is the right hand of authority. That... that motif is all throughout scripture jesus is seated where at the right hand of the father so right hand joseph is joseph's like okay grandpa can't see well got to get the oldest one on the right hand side so it's just natural for dad to stick his hand on that one and then the left hand is going to be the younger one so it's just going to be natural to do this but do you you read how he did that Manasseh is the younger one. He's going to the left. Ephraim uh, is, uh, wait, I got that backwards. 
Um, Ephraim is the younger. He's going on the left. Manasseh is the older. He's going on the right. And what does Jacob do? He literally crosses his hands. Did you guys notice that when we read that? Look at, um, look at verse 14. Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. He can't see, but he knows, because he's being led by God, he knows which one is supposed to be the one that receives the blessing. this ring up any memories? Remember that Jacob is the younger and Esau was his older brother? Remember that God told Isaac through Rebekah's dream, He said, there, is, there are two nations in your womb and the younger is going to be in charge of the older. God, Romans 9 says, before they had done anything, God demonstrating His sovereign election said, I have chosen Jacob, and not Esau. And yet, Isaac tried to make it go the other way, and he's like, no, that is not the way that I said it would go. So now we have the same thing happening here where Jacob, the younger, is now crossing his hands to bless the way that God has said it. And it creates an issue for faithful Joseph. Because look at verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he takes his father's hand off of his head, uh, his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. He literally reached in and said, Dad, what are you doing? Wrong. And he's trying to move the, trying to move his hand over. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. I want you to just think like Joseph for a second. You've followed God. You've served God. God has given you interpretation of dreams. You're second in command. You know who your father is. You know the promises of God. You have been faithful to God your entire life. You're in Egypt, but you are still faithful to God, surrounded by pagans everywhere. You're faithful to God. This blessing is important, which illustrates that Joseph is still faithful to the covenant God of Israel, his dad, whose name is Israel. And he is not happy. Not happy that this blessing seems to be getting messed up. You know what he's thinking. He's thinking, Dad is senile. He's 147. He can't see. He doesn't know what he's doing. But they believe so much in the blessing that God would go through the patriarch, through his father. He needs that blessing to be right. The oldest one is supposed to get it. And that is where I want us to really look this morning. And it's in your bulletin as the scripture that we're emphasizing. But when I read this this week, it just hit me 
like a sledgehammer, verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. I know. I know who the oldest one is. And I know how you feel about this. I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What is Jacob saying? Jacob is saying, this is God's plan. And his plan is not your plan. Have you ever, ever heard anybody say that before? Why is this lesson so difficult to live with? I, and I'm, I, I mean, think of your life. We have said out of our mouth words that our heart is far away from. This happens all the time. The words that come out of our mouth is, or are as follows, I know God has a plan and I'm going to trust in that. But what our heart is really saying is, not this one, that one. That's what our heart's really saying. Our heart is really saying, you're putting the, your hand, Lord, on the wrong kid. This, this is not the one, it's, it's this one. I put him on the right side. I mean, what, what do you want me to do? I know you're old and can't see, Lord, what's going on in my heart. But this is the right plan, not this one. And we are constantly, like Joseph, trying to pick the hand up of God and stick it on the one that we want. And the reason this is so good and encouraging is, is that Joseph is not rebuked. Joseph is not rebuked. What he desired is natural. The oldest is supposed to get the blessing. The oldest is supposed to be the heir. The oldest is supposed to be next in line. He's not being rebuked for wanting something that makes sense. He's not rebuked at all. Look at the way that Jacob answers. I know, my son. I know. I know this is what you think. I know this is what you feel. I know this is what makes sense to you. But this isn't the way it's going to be. Because there's something better down the road that I'm in charge of and not you. Does anybody see where the sermon is going? Does anybody make a connection with that in your heart? That that is the loving father that we serve he joseph is faithful to god and is confused by the blessing that's taking place and god is telling us through this story i know jennifer i know i know i know that it makes sense to you for it to be this way i know but it's not going to be that way it's going to be this way 
We say all the time that we know God has a plan. But this is the rubber that meets the road when you see God literally cross his hands and do something that makes zero sense. Do we trust God that he will get us where he wants us to go? Proverbs chapter 16 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is destruction. God does not leave it all up to you and to me, which should invoke hallelujah choruses. Because if it was up to you and me, how well would everything be going? Listen, I'm not saying there are not consequences for your stupidity, because, because there, there is. And that's part of God's loving, disciplining plan in our life, is that He does correct us for what we do wrong. But what I'm saying is, is that God's plan for your life, for our church, for our nation, for this world is God's plan, and He is getting us there. And I am frequently looking at God's arms and recognizing they look like this. And I have no idea why. But when I read those words, I know. I I just heard Steve, I know. I understand why you feel that way. I know. I get it. But we're not doing it that way. We're doing it this way. And it encourages me that God who knows our frame, that we are dust, that He is merciful and He is loving. He is not vindictive. Joseph, you stupid moron! Do you not know the way this should be? Of course you don't know. You and I do not have the perspective that God has. Nor do we have the ability to make... We can't even comprehend God in charge of the world leading us to a second coming of Christ at some point in our future. Could be this afternoon. Probably not, but it could be. We are headed towards Jesus coming back Sometime, some way, God is taking all of history to that point, and He is glorifying Himself in the process. And in that glorification of God, sometimes He makes the younger in charge rather than the older. Sometimes He, cho- well, according to Corinthians, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those that are wise. God uses Bethlehem and a manger to introduce the king of the world. That is not the way we would have done it. I would have, I, I've said this before, I would have had a 500-foot golden neon angel with a flaming sword that could be seen at all corners of the globe with a voice everybody could understand in their own language holding up Jesus like Simba on the rock saying, This is the Son of God. And then everybody would have listened. That is not the way God did it. 
He had a virgin give birth to a baby in a manger. <laughs> because God will not share His glory with any of us, and yet what He does is bring us in to Himself and He glorifies us with Him through Jesus Christ so that God is always in the place of receiving the praise for His glorious grace and His love and His mercy and His compassion and His holiness and all that He is, and we are in the place of recipient receiving from the King what He gives good gifts to us. And along the way, there is a lot of the giving of good things that look like this to us initially. It looks like it's backwards. It looks like it's wrong. It looks like, God, why would you let that guy be president? Because we just read in Daniel during camp that God sets up kingdoms and He tears them down. He puts rulers in and He takes them out. That means every president we've ever had is the one God wanted in there. And there's a lot of presidents that I wouldn't have put in there. And there is less than 30 days away an election, which we should all vote biblically and righteously. But whoever wins is going to be the person God sticks in there. And again, and I said this in 2016, and I said it in 2012, and I said it in 2008, I said it in 2004, and I'll say it until I'm dead. We get what God knows we need or, in judgment, what we deserve. And there are frequent things that happen in our world that look like this to me. Hands crossed. How in the world? Why in the world? Who in the world? That, but if I bring it down just to my life, and I look at, God, why? Why? Why would you do one thing and then lead us to this other thing? Why? And then you go through all the cycles. What did I do wrong? What did I pray? What did I not pray? Did I not fast enough? Did I not give enough? You go through all the list. Why? Because we are addicted to us being in charge of everything. And, I don't want to be confusing, but it could be that part of the reason why our lives get discombobulated is because we have turned our back on God and we aren't praying and we aren't worshiping and we aren't spending time with Him. Those, and there are consequences to those things. There are very real consequences to those things which are also a part of the plan of God to get us where He's getting us. What I'm trying to get across though when I look at this is, is that God's plan is frequently not what we would have done. Are there examples of this in the Bible? Yes. <laughs> there are so many examples of this in the Bible. I don't even, it's hard to narrow them down. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. How many times did Peter get rebuked? Because everything Jesus did, Peter viewed it like this. Don't let the kids in here. Remember that one? Lord, I won't deny you. Remember that one? 
Lord, I'll follow you to the end. I'll follow you to the end of the age. Remember, remember the time he yelled at Jesus for uh, saying he was going to die. He said, "Not so, Lord, not you." Jesus finally, with Peter, loudmouth Peter, said, "Get behind me, Satan." Remember, remember, Peter is a great example of seeing everything that Jesus did as his hands are crossed. Not that way, Jesus. This way. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, shall we call down fire from heaven on them now, Lord? <laughs> Remember that, that one? They, they, they're like, we're ready for a militant leader to take us into the promised land with blood and glory. Everything Jesus did, they viewed as crossed. They kept trying to take his hand. Not this way, Lord. You're supposed to be the messianic Davidic return. You're supposed to come in on a white horse. You're supposed to return the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus is like, I know, I know, it's, it's going to be this way. In the book of Acts chapter 16, one of my favorite stories, it's verses 6 through 10, it's definitely worth reading later, is when they're on their way to Asia to preach and they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. Remember we talked when we went through the book of Acts that God said to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but when they went to go into all the world in that direction, God said no. And he directed them this way. And they received a vision in the night of Macedonia, and God, he wanted them there. That didn't make sense. Paul, in the beginning of his epistles, frequently says, I'm trying to get to you guys, trying to get to you guys in Rome. I've been hindered. But he says, when... When God wills. The learning curve is when our life looks like God has done this and has crossed his hands is to say, I don't understand this, but I'm not going to try to pick his hand up and move it where I want it to be. I am going to trust that he's doing something that is for my good. If I were Joseph, I would have chosen a university and a seminary to learn how to be a good leader. God chose to send him into slavery, send him into lies from Potiphar's wife, send him into prison, send him into forgetfulness, and then uses him to interpret a dream. And out of nowhere, he becomes second. He goes from jail to second command of Egypt. If Joseph had tried to do it his way, he never would have got there. God's way is always the right way. Our job is to learn how to trust Him when the hands of blessing are crossed. Now, I am not saying that that means we're like, oh, well, then if... Everything that's not going right in my life is an example of God's crossed hands and I'll just let whatever happens happen. That is not what I'm actually saying. I want you to go with me quickly to Proverbs chapter 16 because Proverbs 16 is very helpful in this regard. I've already quoted from Proverbs 16 earlier. Look at verse 1. 
The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord. Commit your work to the Lord. And your plans will be established. Which plans? Well, according to verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We are supposed to plan. We are supposed to act. I have plans for my daughters to go to college. I have plans for them to marry a man that loves Jesus with all of his heart. I have plans for all of these things. And if they get it wrong, they will be grounded. Eventually they get to an age where you can't ground them. Right? I have plans. I have ways Jennifer and I discuss the way we raise our children. That we, we plan and we teach and we prepare and we do all of those things. But we have to commit that work to the Lord and trust Him in what He does. That doesn't mean I don't work. It doesn't mean I don't pray. It doesn't mean I don't study. In fact, it gives me a new purpose in prayer, in reading and study, because now I'm not doing it thinking, I'm making it all happen, Lord. Thanks for the advice and the tips along the way. I instead am committing my work to the Lord and saying, Lord, if you don't do it, I'm the branch out here suspended in midair. I'm not going to grow any fruit. I've got to be connected to the vine, Jesus. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. I've got to be connected to Him for the fruit to grow. So I am committing my life and my work and my prayer to the Lord and trusting Him that when the arms of blessing are crossed, He knows what He's doing. I have plans in my heart. The Lord is establishing my steps. Verse 4, if you really want solidified in how some of this works, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. God has purpose and plans for everything, and I am not privy to all that information. What I am privy to is what His Word says, so I do it like Joseph. Joseph was faithful in doing everything he was supposed to be doing, and he got there to the end, and Jacob crosses it up, messes everything up. Not this way, Dad. Not this way. I know, son. I know. Those are the moments where you don't rest back and say, haven't I been to church every Sunday for 30 years? Haven't I prayed enough prayers? That's what our brains are wired to do even though we've heard a million sermons on grace, a million sermons on God being in charge. Not what really, what the way we're really doing things is we're keeping score with God. And it's hard when the hands are different than what we would expect. The ultimate example in the Bible is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you want... The ultimate example, it's Matthew 26, 36-42, where Jesus says, if this cup, if it is possible, 
for this cup to pass and me not drink from it, then Lord, please, but not my will be done, yours be done. Jesus prayed that prayer three times. Each time, Matthew tells us, he falls on his face before God. Have you seen The Passion of the Christ? How many of you have seen that movie? I think that scene is really well done where he is in agony as he prays, as he wrestles with the idea he knew what the plan of God was. The ultimate crossing up of, of the hands of blessing. How in the world is this the plan that the Son of God stand in the place of sinners and He who knew no sin was about to be made sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And so He's at that moment. The fulcrum point has come down right on His head in that moment. He feels the literal weight of the world spiritually. I don't want to do this. But if this is the only way, not my will be done, but yours. He comes back after that third time, finds his disciples sleeping, and says, my accuser's here. He knew what God's will was. And he followed it. That is the ultimate example of things not going the way that we would necessarily want. But do you know what Hebrews tells us about that moment? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that was out in front of Him was the glory of God and the salvation of His people. That joy was out in front. I want to have the worship team on up. The words I hope you will go home with is, I know, son, I know. Or if you just want to stick your name in there, I know, Megan, I know. That God is not condemning us for recognizing this is not the way I expected it to go. What would be wrong was for Joseph to insist and to cry and to scream and to point and to accuse. That's what would have been wrong. But he accepts the hands of blessing being crossed. And that's what I want to encourage you this morning with, is God knows us and He knows where we are, and He knows about our questions, what He's asking us to do is to say, do you believe that I am good and I am taking this somewhere better?